This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everyone, real quick. Before we get into tonight's story, I have a question. If you had the chance, how much money would you be willing to spend to speak to the deceased loved one one more time? A full hour, let's say, with someone that you've lost, someone that you loved, and someone that you miss dearly. Would you do it? And how much... Would you be willing to pay to do so? That idea is explored in this story, and I want you to think about it while you listen. Let me know in the comment section down below. I'll see you at the end of the video. How did we unleash hell on Earth? Simple. It was the same mistake humanity always makes. It started in a parking lot. A breeze came, stirring the steam rising from patches of old ice that were sublimating under the surprisingly warm afternoon sun. I sat in my car, feeling none of that interplay of heat and cold. Eating a hamburger and drinking a soda, I idly watched nature ebb and flow. The wife never used to let me eat fast food. I was finding that greasy food was not really the holy grail of indulgences that I believed it to be when I couldn't have it. The discarded wrapper and empty cup found their way into the back. A growing pile of fast food trash had started rather innocuously on the floor and grown from there, to the point that it was now beginning to threaten the entire backseat territory. The villagers were alarmed, but the king couldn't be bothered. Every time he was in his castle, his mind was elsewhere. I lowered the drawbridge and stepped out of my car. Immediately assaulted by warm radiance and chill breeze, I walked across the parking lot and stood above a large patch of ice, watching the flowing stream rise from the ice and the rolling aerial columns. Had we been going about this all wrong? There was no liquid. It went straight from ice to steam, thanks to conflicting conditions and a vast power source on high. Turning away, I hurried back toward my building, my thoughts turning over something important that I couldn't quite yet pin down. I didn't hate her. I hadn't meant what I said. This place, the place I was instead of with her on all those half-remembered days, this place made me think of her at all times, and yet... It was my only refuge from a veritable ocean of despair that seemed to blink at everywhere else. It was all muscle memory by now. Keycard, push open the heavy door with a slight forward lean lasting roughly a second. Warm air conditioning breeze, turn right, dingy white rectangles and slightly too dim lights, 20 to 30 seconds of zoned out walking past flyers, posters and notes I'd never once looked at, turn left, check rumpled clothes, cough once, Fix hair. Door. 
Doctor. My intern cried, jumping first to the right, then to the left, then back to his monitor where he quickly alt-tabbed away from his game. He was burning bright red when he swiveled around in his chair, but to his credit, he managed to play it cool. How was lunch? I knew Emil played games half the time, and I didn't care, as long as the work got done. I didn't tell him that, though. Why spoil one of the few office joys? Good. What are you working on? Just, uh, this morning's data. I managed not to laugh. He was smart and capable. He'd finished that two hours ago. We didn't have enough work to justify his presence, but we couldn't let him go, or else he would lose our funding for interns in the future. Any conclusions? He just shook his head. It still looks like a mess. Gazing beyond him, I regarded the wall of glass that protected the next room. Filled with computers and equipment, the testing chamber ran most of our simulations in a semi-automated fashion. I picked up a random tennis ball that had been moving around the room whenever I wasn't present. I imagined Emil bounced it against the wall to pass the hours. This time, I bounced it against my coworker. Turner sat up abruptly, dropping his book. What? I'm awake. When he saw that I wasn't buying it, he changed tack. It's lunchtime. It is, I told him. But I think I have an idea. Both of my companions perked up. Ideas had been sparse the last few months. Sublimation, I said, staring at our equipment. We've been running data assuming certain things, specifically that we'd get statistically sensible data. What if our equipment causes dramatic changes in behavior, like the sun on ice? Turner frowned. We're not the sun. We're sending very little energy. But we have no idea what these manifolds contain. Emil replied, sounding intrigued. It's very little to us, but I nodded. Let's start separating the data and see what happens. We'd had many leads over the last several years, yet I never grew jaded. It was always exciting to feel that today could be the day. The applications of a breakthrough at our lab wouldn't mean much immediately, but we could open the door to a host of fantastic science fiction technologies. And as I often told myself, that might have made my personal sacrifices worth it. It was two in the morning, and long past the time we all should have gone home, when Emil sighed and waved a hand at his monitor. Even with the separate data sets, they're all still just clouds of random information. Sitting at the table behind us, coffee mug in hand, and a dozen pages of notes strewn nearby, Turner turned his gaze over at the screen. Why are you looking at brain maps? I turned abruptly. What? He yawned. That's a neural map. You guys giving up for the night or something? I looked back at the monitor. Rotate that. Eyes wide, Emil moved the graphs we made. As they turned, their shapes became absurdly obvious. We said it at the same time. Brains? 
Turner narrowed his eyes. Wait, is that our data? Why does it look like brains? They're overlapping images of brains, I replied in amazement. Not actual physical structures, but holographically equivalent results of the complex physics at play. We've been mapping a very dense collection of neural networks. And look here, at the change over time, that's why our data just looks like garbage. They're reacting to our energy. Standing abruptly and hurrying over with his coffee, Turner studied the monitor alongside me. You're saying that these brains are active? I nodded. Alive, even. I mean, we'd have to get a neuroscientist to verify, but they look normal to me. Emil was the first to ask the obvious question. He seemed more worried than excited. Um, whose brains? That gave Turner and I pause. Whose brains indeed? If we'd found a dense collection of living brain maps in a twisted up higher dimension, then... These were people. If they were people, then... Who were they? And what were they doing there? Get the phones, I said. We've got a thousand calls to make. Won't everyone be asleep by now? Emil asked. I couldn't help but grin hungrily. <laughs> we'll wake them up. Mathematicians, neuroscientists, and physicists flooded our lab over the following month, and we moved to a bigger one when it became a problem. Funding had always been a struggle before that night, but the money began pouring in without us so much as writing a grant proposal. Everyone wanted to be part of the insane discovery that the electrical patterns of human brains were accessible in higher dimensions. Nobody knew what it meant, either. Was this proof of the existence of a soul? I didn't think so. We were seeing the exact same thing that a magnetic resonance imager might see. It was the entire brain, but just the brain. Nothing more, nothing less. Was our entire model of physics wrong? We weren't sure. Something was certainly going on beyond our understanding, but the rest of science remained in place. The more we mapped, the more brains we found. The more brains we found, the more institutions began pouring funding into encouraging people to get brain scans. A prize was posted for the first person to match up, and donations quickly ballooned into incredible heights. When the prize broke a hundred million dollars... The world went crazy. We had people claiming they could feel us mapping them, and they were causing them health problems. We had psychics claiming they'd known about our findings all along, and that was how they'd been reading minds. We had conspiracy theorists protesting that the government would use this technology to scan their thoughts. <sighs> that one always annoyed me the most. If we could read thoughts, we wouldn't have to compare brain scans to actual living people, now would we? We'd just pick the names out of their heads and... Actual living people. It was... In the parking lot of our new lab, when that annoyance and relevation hit me. <sighs> 
I put down my soda and left my hamburger half-eaten. There was no longer a pile of trash in the back seat, but only because a maid hired by our PR guy cleaned it every day. No. No, absolutely not. That couldn't be it. I approached the new building in a daze. Keycard, push open the light door with a slight forward open. Oops, stumble. Warm air conditioning breeze, turn right, no, left, damn it. Shaking my head, I sighed and aimed for the proper hallway. Turn right, check, rumpled clothes, cough once, fix hair, door. After so long at the old lab, the vast warehouse-like space of our new place always astounded me in subtle ways. A hundred of the best and brightest minds from across the world sat and stood at desks and at whiteboards working at the breakneck caffeine-fueled pace. The world was watching, and we needed answers. I walked to the gigantic main whiteboard and stood by it, regarding the long list of possibilities we'd come up with. Many men and women slowly approached me. I think they could see the profound horror on my drawn face. Turning, I looked each of them in the eyes. I was sure I'd remember all their faces for the rest of my life, because in that moment, the world was about to change. I didn't have any eloquent words for it, either. Guys, we've mapped 11 billion different brain patterns. We've scanned 4 billion living human beings. They don't match up. It hit them all in a slow wave. We hadn't thought of it before, because we hadn't wanted to think of it before. The implications were enormous, confusing, and terrifying. I said it for them. The active brains folded up in higher dimensions that were mapping. I think they're dead people. Twelve percent of our staff quit that day. We told no one. We couldn't say a word until we were certain. The minds we were seeing. Were they suffering? Were they in an afterlife right at that very moment? Was it heaven? Was it hell? Or were they simply floating in oblivion? What were they experiencing? It was maddening to think about. Secret funding quadrupled our staff. Wizak, Higgs, Leggett, Witten, Hawking, we got them all. I don't know how our funders were keeping our project under wraps, and I didn't ask. It probably didn't even matter in the face of what we were uncovering. When we finished mapping all the minds hidden in higher dimensions and found ourselves looking at a list of 118 billion entries long, we knew for certain. We'd found humanity's dead. And they were still alive. Somehow, somewhere. 
Our facility split into two projects once it was confirmed. Half of us focused on figuring out how to use brain images to decipher thoughts and images. The other half focused on communicating with the dead in some manner. We'd already seen their neural patterns respond to the energy our equipment had been using to scan the higher dimensional manifolds. From there, the teams focused on connecting more directly. I remember the day that we first managed to hook a computer to a mind and vocalize their consciously directed attempts at speech. The process took over a thousand iterations and several billion dollars and a few years of our lives, but it was all going to be worth it. We had all our investors on hand and a translator for every language. Turner was given the honor. He looked around the warehouse at the hundreds gathered round, grinned sheepishly, and then spoke into the microphone. Hello? Can you hear me? A few moments passed, and we were worried that it might not have... A few tentative words followed. An older man stepped out from the crowd. It's Ossidan, he said translating, an old dialect from around southern France, between the 12th and 14th centuries. He said, Who is that? Turner motioned the man forward. Ask him what his name is. The answer came a moment later. Patris. What year is it? Turner asked. The older man translated the question and then the answer. He says... 1302. A great silence fell across the warehouse at that reply. We were speaking to a European peasant that had died almost 700 years before. Like everyone else, I stood frozen by the implications. Could I... Could I talk to my wife again? Could I have another chance to tell her that I hadn't meant what I said? The last thing she'd ever heard? Who's the King of France? Turner and the translator asked. The answer, as I heard it, Felipe. A lag followed as we each thought back to history class, and then... The blanket of silence ruptured as a massive swelling cheer filled the air. It was real. I lost track of our size and funding after that. We'd made honest contact with a dead person, and money became irrelevant. Everything we needed was thrown at us, and the world found out through security leaks a month before our press release. I didn't care about any of that. I could have retired immediately as an insanely wealthy and famous man, but I worked day and night for my own reasons. Emil was still with me, though. Now he was being paid far better than any intern. He'd met Laura, so he'd probably guessed at the secret reasons for my dedication to the project. We couldn't choose our connection among the individuals in what we had begun calling the afterspace. 
On our breaks, we spent every minute talking to the dead. I knew whose voice I wanted to hear, but I kept getting African tribal chiefs, Mongol warriors, Egyptian slaves, Roman legionnaires, and any number of people I'm sure would have been fascinated to speak with. One guy, honest to God, got Albert Einstein on the line. We kept that connection open permanently. He was more than willing to help out. In fact, he'd been collecting data since the moment of his death in that very hopes that something like this would happen. Always the scientist. We chuckled at that. And yet, he would not speak on his current experiences. None of them would. Not a single dead mind would vocalize what they were seeing, hearing, or feeling. We knew from their neural maps that they were experiencing something, but none would reveal what it was. We unduly pressed. Some expressed a willingness to try, but then complained that they could not vocalize the thought to us. It became known as the New Cosmic Censorship Hypothesis. Humans were born with no knowledge of what came before, and when they died, they could not give certain censored information back to the living. It was in their brains, in their experiences, in their emotions, but it was still hidden from us. The next development came in a both natural and surreal manner. Einstein's connection was always open, so they gave his computer a little mobile drone to roll around on. With certain thoughts, he could order it to move around. We gave him a visual feed, too, so he could both see and hear the world around his computer. After he expressed frustration at not being able to write on the boards himself, they gave him mechanical arms. It became eerie when somebody thought to dispense with the makeshift setup we'd cobbled together and instead give him a full-on robotic body. Suddenly, Albert Einstein was walking around our facility, working on theoriums and giving lectures to droves of visitors, reading books in his free time and recharging in the corner every night. From there, it was fairly obvious what was going to happen next. Our investors and a world full of elated donors and supporters bought more robotic bodies. We bought the warehouse across the lots and filled it with artificial bodies that would remain on hand for anyone we thought scientifically useful. And then, for anyone we found particularly important or interesting. And then, for anyone whose loved ones paid enough. And that was when I realized why big money had invested in us. (laughs) How much would you pay? To have your loved one back. A hundred thousand? A million? They worked out deals with almost anyone based on one's ability to pay. They lobbied the government and got tax credits worked into the system itself. It was a basic human right, they argued, to have your loved one resurrected robotically if their number came up. It was still random, you see. If the family didn't pay at that moment, there was a chance they'd never have another opportunity. There were 118 billion minds in the afterlife, and growing. And the vast majority of those were ancient people from between the year 8000 BC and the year 1280. The odds of 
having someone you loved come up were worse than any lottery. And yet, people still hoped. I still hoped. For having a think tank comprised of the brightest minds in the world, we sure didn't see possibilities that turned out to be obvious later. I suppose we were too caught up in math and science to think about the human angle. I was in my office when I first heard the screams. The power went out shortly after, leaving me in the dark, save for a few red backup lights. Emil? I called. Yeah, Doc? Did something explode? I didn't hear anything like that, he said. In the dark, I frowned. Then why isn't the emergency power coming on? He had no answer for me. Stepping out of our shared office, we peered up and down the crimson-lit hallway. My first thought was that we were under attack by one of the protest groups that had made serious death threats against us. There were a great many people concerned that what we were doing was wrong, and I knew enough about religion not to ignore the strength of their convictions. And there was every possibility they were right. I just didn't care. I had to have my moment. I had to talk to her. We crept down our hallway, passing concerned scientists on either side. At the corner, we found a security guard on the ground. I bent down to check his neck for a pulse, but stopped halfway to the floor. Something had torn his legs out of their sockets. His lower half was leaking dark liquid. Under the crimson backup lights, the pool looked black as pitch. I stood and backed away. Emil saw, nearly wretched. It's gotta be a robot, I said quietly. They're a retrofitted military design. They could probably do this to a man. But why? Emil asked, following me quickly down another hallway. We couldn't stay where we were. Something was seriously wrong. I headed for our warehouse working space first and peered in through a bent door. Something had rampaged through the area. Desks had been overturned or obliterated, and I saw black blood stains on the red cast floor. Somewhere distant, I heard machinery moving. Was it? No. The humanoid robotic forms were nearly silent. Heavy footsteps fell somewhere nearby, and we darted inside the shattered warehouse space. Hiding underneath the desk with a meal, I tried to guess what had happened. Had one of the teams connected someone dangerous to a robotic body? Why would they do that? Our foolishness struck me quite hard. We'd never really considered the fact that the dead could lie. Someone could say their name was Petrus, and we'd take them at their word. The desk lifted away so smoothly I almost didn't notice. Only the sudden span of red lights across my arms betrayed our discovery. It stood above us, five feet of whirly, metallic crimson. One arm lifted a meal by the neck, and a smooth and creepy voice gave me an order. 
tell me how to get out of here or the boy dies. And then you die. I will, I told him, intent on appealing to his ego based on some self-defense training we'd had after our first death threats. I will. Just, first, who are you? Who are you really? How, how did you trick us? He laughed and the eerie noise set me on edge. <laughs> trick you? You people are idiots. A little military jargon and you were convinced I was a good guy. Still, I'm going to do things right this time. No alcohol this time. No anger. What do you call all this? I asked, horrified. Two black cameras set in a crimson metal mockery of a face gazed down at me. A guard figured out who I was, he grunted. I had to. You had hurt all these people, I asked, looking up at Emil who was struggling to breathe. Let him go and I'll have them let you go. Blame it on what's happened, pulling you out of the afterlife. The chrome head turned as he looked his victim in the eyes. But I... I want to... hurt him. You abandoned me for years in that place. I hate all of you so much, I just... No! We rescued you, I countered. You died. Nobody could do anything about that. He nodded slowly. I died. Right. I remember. Slowly the metal hand unclapsed and Emil fell to the floor, gasping for breath. Out that door and then to the left, I told the robotic dead man. Go down the hallway. It's the third door on the right. You'll come out to a parking lot and you'll have to make a run for it. He turned away then and moved quickly out. Of course, the guards were ready in the parking lot. Numerous machine guns ring out in the distance, and I sat with a meal until it was over. The incident changed everything about how he operated. I had personally come face to face with the dangerous forces at work, and so had many others, and we were no longer exuberantly risky. Every single step of the process became filled with checks upon checks, and the public eye was glaring down us with ire. We'd almost resurrected and released an infamous serial murderer. He killed three guards, six major scientists, a large but damaging a large portion of our facility. We looked incompetent at best, and idiots at worst. <sighs> Despite all of our best efforts to reform our procedures, eventually we were outstead. Our investors gave us all the boots and installed yes-men once the process no longer really needed us. They kept the connection machines running night and day and made countless numbers of them. Eventually, they started ruling out people's dead relatives in a more consistent manner. I had to sit at home and watch as my neighbors each got the call one by one. And still, none came for me. Emil visited often, and Turner visited sometimes. None of us were able to find jobs in any field 
remotely related to science, so we began to suspect that we'd been blacklisted. We were lucky to have enough money to live on already, thanks to wise choices when it all started. Not that money was going to last long as a thing. The flood of resurrected, as they came to be called, began drastically changing the social landscape. We had the greatest minds of every generation coming back and talking up to the positions at the universities and research institutions. Who could say no to installing Albert Einstein or Isaac Newton at the top? Many of our former colleagues joined us in unemployment. There were only so many positions available, and great names throughout history kept appearing to take those spots. They didn't require food or drink or sleep either. Without the hindrance of a human body, they could work tirelessly through the night, and we began to see rapid advances in technology and science, even as regular working men and women became obsolete. It started at the top and worked down. I knew something was seriously wrong when my gas station attendant, Lou, was replaced by a resurrected. Some family had paid to bring a person back from the dead, and now they were working at a gas station. It was eerie to see a robot doing a man's work in such a mundane setting. Around that time, people started killing themselves in the hope of coming back as a robot. They left payment for themselves through a lawyer to ensure the money. And the whole thing became a sort of twisted, semi-religious movement. What do you do when the world is falling apart around you? They always told us robots would take our jobs. We just didn't expect it to be our own dead friends, family, and ancestors operating them. They outnumbered us, could outwork us, and were going to outlive us. In many ways, I could see what the protest groups had feared. If the dead replaced the living, would humanity simply stall forever? I heard my dad was back in town, paid for my brother, but I had no interest in speaking to either of them. There was only one person I wanted to talk to. The whole world had gone insane. Society was coming apart, and all I could think about were the last words I said to my wife before she died. How many years had it been now? I couldn't move on. It was impossible to move on with the chance of talking to your dead loved one actually existed. That realization put a profound shock through me as I sat watching an episode of Jeopardy in which the historical questions were actually about the contestants who'd lived in those eras. The dead had to die for the living to move forward. We were being overtaken by the sheer weight of our own past. I wasn't alone in my dark thoughts. When I spoke with Emil about these feelings, he revealed to me that he was already part of a movement dedicated to purposes I'd only begun to dream of. Turner was, too. They just hadn't been able to tell me until they knew how I felt. My longing to speak to my dead wife had concerned them. But I'd given up on that. It seemed that it wasn't in the cards for me, and I'd realized it was unhealthy to hold on in any case. The streets were filled with resurrected by then. They'd gotten more lifelike and less materialistic bodies, yet somehow they remained in the uncanny valley. They 
strolled on the sidewalks, drove cars, and sat on their porches like any normal person. Except they died. They were dead, and they didn't deserve to still be walking around. I kept my growing hatred hidden, like many of us did. They'd taken our jobs, our neighborhoods, and now our futures. I did the final calculations, since I knew the process best and had been there from the beginning. With little time for infiltration and the risk that any of us might die at any time and then tip off the dead, 2,000 of us descended on the large hardened collider at the planned day and time. It was late November and crisp out. I didn't feel bad about the resurrected security guards. They were just chrome and wires. Our soldiers, some of whom had been with us since our first major lab, sliced their way into the facility with zealous fire. I hadn't even thought to defend it from such an attack, since none of the dead had any idea what we could do with it. With the facility cleared, the soldiers set up to defend against a possible siege, and the rest of us got to work. It was eerie how fast the resurrected responded. Soldiers from our team that had died in the attack came at us in chrome bodies only days later. What could possibly have convinced them to switch sides so easily? Was it simply a matter of self-interest? Now that they were dead, had they decided to cast their lots with their new demographic? It was too late in any case. With the calculations complete and the equipment properly prepared, we activated the collider. Nothing happened as far as we could see, but the resurrected stopped. Everywhere. All at once. We'd filled a crucial, extremely small and curled up higher dimension with carefully engineered static. Robotic bodies here on Earth lost their connection to the afterlife forever. We walked out of that facility with a burgeoning sense of freedom. 36 billion robotic bodies stood frozen all over the planet, and 6 billion human beings remained to carry on without their very own ancestors in the way. It was after that, after picking up the pieces, that we found all the left-behind private communications between the resurrected. Those communications clued us in. Those communications showed us how short-sighted and foolish we'd been. There was no new cosmic censorship principle. There never had been. They'd all simply lied. The afterlife was, as they'd described it to each other, an infinitely small box filled with the sparkling, screaming, and shouting minds of everyone who had ever died. In each new death, each new brain pattern, made the whole place just a little bit hotter and denser. They described the afterlife as ever-increasing squeezing of one's awareness, ever-increasing burning heat, and endless clamor. There was no end in sight, no relief, and they'd collaborated together from the very first moment they'd felt our tenuous probing. They'd lied the whole time. Lied to escape, lied to find freedom and return to the living world. Instead of working with them or hoping for the best, we'd close that door forever. The thing is, nobody around us seems to care. 
They kick the empty robotic bodies, string them up, and laugh and celebrate. They work, eat, sleep, and party. Death is something that happens to other people, or old people, or the deserving. I tried to tell them that death comes to us all and that we'd made a grave mistake, but nobody wanted to listen. Every single human being that comes after us, for the next 2.2 billion years at least, until the static we made decays, will go into that box. Every old person that passes on in slumber, every young person that dies tragically, they'll all end up there. Every child that is ever born will one day become another mind thrown into torment. We're all going to die. We're all going to end up in an infinitely small box together, screaming. Forever. And nobody cares. That's the hilarious and mind-numbing part. It's the same simple mistake that humanity always makes. Even after all that, we haven't solved any of the other issues facing our future. Pollution, global warming, resource depletion, automation, wealth inequality, antibiotic resistance, and nobody cares about those either. The excuses are always the same. Someone else will deal with it. Those will happen to someone else. We've got time to figure it all out. It's laughable, and it never changes. Me? I won't be around for those rides. None of this has any point. Not now that we know what awaits. The world is just a waiting room for hell. I'm not waiting around with these fools. I'm going to go apologize to my wife. So, now that you've seen the possible consequences of being able to speak to a deceased loved one or having them come back in some way, do you think it would be worth the money that you said you'd give up to do so? Me personally, I think I'm going to pass. There are things I wish I would have said to certain people who are gone now, but that's something that's out of our control and maybe should stay out of our control. It's just something to think about. I hope you all have a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening. And of course, Merry Christmas. Take care of each other, everyone.